Blog Talk Radio. Speakers. You get a pop on um, PCBI line? Nothing. Today, on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Thank you for joining us tonight. We're live from the Ivy City Smokehouse, and we are welcoming everyone around in Washington, D.C. to come out and support and uh, Help us understand exactly what's at stake for you and I in global politics. I want to thank you for uh, just allowing us to have this platform, allowing us to expand ourselves. I first of all, thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ every time just to, just because we're in this position to be able to do what we're doing right now. It's uh, one of those things where you have a dream and you want to do something and things just happen to just fall together and you're able to accomplish exactly what you're looking to do. So I am grateful uh, to my Savior for allowing this to occur, to allow this to happen, because sometimes, you know, when you think about everything that's going on across this country, you have to ask yourself, what is going on and what's happening? And why is it happening so much right now? 
I just don't understand it. It, it. It's impossible for me to know why things happen the way they do and where, what's going on, but it is. And so because it is, we have to do something about it. So I want to thank you for joining us tonight. As we do across this uh, platform, we reach out to you and we talk to different subject matter experts to let them know exactly, uh, or they let us know exactly what's going on and how we need to pay attention to all the different policies and issues, social, economic, and political that's going on. But I also want to just go back to thank Greg Caston here at Ivy City Smokehouse for allowing us to host this show here and create a live audience for ourselves to be able to enjoy exactly what's happening across the uh, District of Columbia, the DMV, as well as across the nation. So I want to welcome you to the show, welcome all our guests that are going to be calling in, that are going to be here present, and those of you in the audience that are supporting and, and here live. Just a few things that we want to help you out with, of course, when you come through the door and, and get your tickets, I guess you can uh, register at the table, you can get your uh, happy hour uh, drink and wing uh, type tickets and everything over there. Uh, just see the young lady at the front. And of course, if you have your cell phones out, you know, put those on uh, vibrate for us. So just so we don't have the mute, uh, the ringing coming across uh, if some of our panelists are talking or discussing or you have it out there. Also, if you have any questions at any time, let us know. We have some microphones for you here live. If you want to call in, the number is 516-590-0143. 516-590-0143. And uh, for those of you here in the audience, you can certainly just let us know. We'll get you a microphone, and uh, you can ask your question of the panelists, anyone, uh, any one of the panelists that are calling in or those who are here live with us. So we want to thank you very much for joining us. On the call, on the line with me this morning, I want to get right into it because we have uh, a lot of folks that are coming by tonight and want to get into it. Tonight, we're going to hit a number of topics. We're going to get our, our Maryland legislative review in. We're going to talk about the D.C. infrastructure and what's going on there with Washington Gas and the pipe re uh, retrofitting that's going on and what that's going to mean for many district residents, as well as jobs and how those jobs are going to impact uh, district residents or, or D.C., as well as going into the discussion uh, about the need for African-Americans getting more involved in urban gardens and green energy and the policies that are behind that. And then we're going to move into uh, mental health issues in the black community. And then as we did last week, we're going to move into our national uh, issues and deal with the, the folks that are going to be talking to us about national issues from Trump to Congress to the House and a couple of uh, racial things that we always have to see that's going on everywhere, from dogs to cats to everything else. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand why we got to call the police on a dog, but we do. So joining me uh, tonight for our uh, Maryland Legislative Watch is Ms. Janice Jones, savvy young political who is taking Maryland politics by storm and becoming one of the strategics, uh, one of the greatest strategists in Maryland, and uh, people are looking for her left and right to come in and start doing some things. And uh, if you want to get elected in Maryland, make sure you look up Janice Jones. Janice, are you on the line there? Oh, I'm on the line. Thank you so much, Kelly, for that nice introduction. Great. And hello to the studio, to the audience there at Ivy City. Um, listen, I'm so excited. There's so much happening in Maryland uh, right now, legislatively, Kelly. So let's just dive right in. So Thanks, minimum I appreciate you. I appreciate you uh, giving us a call and coming in. 
uh, calling in, I'm sorry, um, and uh, giving us this update. So talk to me, what are the issues that Marylanders, Maryland, Marylanders, as you say it quickly, yeah. um, <laughs> need to know about and keep an eye on coming up through the state legislature? Because they only have a few more weeks left before uh, the, the legislature ends. What are the, some of the things that they need to worry about or think about? Yes. So, so for all my Maryland folks there and listening, uh, minimum wage, our minimum wage bill heads to the Senate. So the Maryland House of Delegates has approved uh, on Friday a bill that would gradually increase the state's minimum wage from $10.10 uh, to $15 by 2025. And so that was a vote of 96 to 44, and it fell down party lines. And so with many Democrats supporting that, so you just want to really keep an eye on these bills, uh, particularly as it relates to people of color um, and, and jobs that are minimum wage jobs. Uh, as we've seen across the news in Hartford County, uh, Delegate uh, Mary Ann Lasanti is still uh, pushing to stay in office, but uh, many black lawmakers and activists in Maryland are clear that they are asking her to resign amid her uh, comments of racial slurs. Um, and so I think it's really interesting as we look across the country and we start to see instances where uh, racial slurs and just different uh, behaviors that are very, uh, quite frankly, disrespectful to uh, minorities, uh, but the ways in which we respond. And so keep an eye on Hartford County uh, as we uh, look to see what happens next with Delegate Lasanti. Uh, also in Maryland, for those who enjoy the Preakness, uh, it's very interesting to pay attention to what's happening. So uh, the, the current group that owns Pimlico Race uh, Course in Baltimore got a full-page ad of the Baltimore Sun to set the record straight. As many of you know, uh, the Pimlico uh, Racetrack hosts the Preakness and currently generates $52.7 million dollars. Okay, and economic activity each year for this one iconic horse race. But uh, many know that this the Pimlico racetrack is old, and so there's been a huge discussion of moving the track, uh, moving the to Florida. Okay, and so that's really important as we talk about economic development um, and what would happen if this was taken out of the Park Heights area. It would really signify, as we say, a death certificate for that community. So just keep your eyes on uh, those pieces with Pimlico as it relates to the huge Preakness race that's coming up in a few months. Um, and then, Kelly, this is huge. And so in terms of uh, many folks are familiar with SNAP benefits. We also call them food supplement or food stamps. And so there's proposed legislation, Senate Bill 752, uh, that would allow for people to use their uh, food stamp benefits in restaurants. Now, currently, as many people know, you can certainly in use it in a grocery Yes, in restaurants. This is sponsored by Senator Clarence Lamb, Senate Bill 752. It's a co-sponsored uh, by-county supported bill, Howard County and Baltimore County. Uh, but it would allow for elderly, disabled, and homeless um, individuals in the state of Maryland to use it at participating restaurants. So they are still developing uh, uh, that list of, of participating restaurants. I think that's a huge... So, so let me ask you this. How they, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt, and I know we got a delay when I'm talking, you're talking. But let me ask you this: If they're they're using it for elderly and homeless and disabled, how are they going to be able to differentiate that? I mean, when those individuals come to those restaurants, I'm kind of queer. I'm kind of query about yes. that. Yes, and I think many of us who are watching this bill are trying to understand just that question, Kelly. And so I think as it's now um, in committee and going through review, those will be some of the amendments that that certainly come to that bill. Because, again, um, for anyone who has been through hard times, you certainly know uh, using uh, that card, you, you have 
certain stipulations. You can't buy certain items. And, and so I think this right. is certainly um, a, a huge way of, of sort of changing that for across the state. That would be huge for the state of Maryland. So we'll keep an eye on that next week. I hope we have an update for you on that. <laughs> Interesting. Now, going back to Pimlico, because, you know, I, I'm looking to go to the Freakness. So okay. when you have, <laughs> right? So when you have um, the idea that they're going to look to move that, because I know there was some talk about moving into Laurel uh, and, uh, 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 you know, closing down Pimlico because of what's going on there and the infrastructure at Pimlico, but Laurel not really being the, you know, the, the, having the capacity in terms of, of the, the, stay, the uh, uh, stables and things of that nature to really support something like that. Uh, what you know? How how are we going to do this? How how are they going to look to do this? And you know, like you said, the impact to the community is going to be huge. That's right. Well, Kelly, let me tell you. But it's so, so funny we're having this conversation about Pimlico and Laurel. I just visited the Laurel uh, race uh, track two Saturdays ago with uh, some of the delegates from my area in Anne Arundel. And let me tell you, I mean, it's an amazing facility. I mean, they have been. Uh, in the bidding process for quite some time for some of the other larger races. But in terms of renovations, it will only be $80 million versus the $450 million that is needed at um, Pimlico. And so, you know, we know that money talks. And so right now I think there's a huge uh, concern from the Pimlico uh, right. supporters about what will happen next. Right. And, again, the economic activity, $52.7 million. I mean, that's huge for Baltimore City So, um, in that Baltimore yeah. region. So we'll be keeping our eye on that. Well, thank you, thank you. So what's at stake for Maryland voters uh, looking forward with, with uh, this legislation and other things? What's at stake for them, and, and what do they have to be you know, concerned about or pay attention, and what can they take advantage of? Well, just across the board, there are a number of things happening. I mean, for those who know, redistricting is a big piece that's going to be happening over the next year or two, and I'll talk a little bit about that next week, Kelly, um, when we have more time. But we want to be really mindful of what's happening in our general areas as it relates to um, voting and, and getting people elected. Um, when we look at places like Montgomery County, there's a tenants' rights bill. Delegate Janelle Wilkins um, pushed that through. She's a good friend of mine. I'm very proud of, of the input that she made. This is making in this her second um, second year in the legislature. But essentially, it will require landlords to give a reason for refusing a tenant. You know, there is so much uh, housing discrimination, and you know, these are the types of bills. That, you know, as we think about moving Maryland forward. They're, they're the subtle pieces, right, that you want to make sure that people know that these things these things are available to make sure that you are not discriminated against, and that's really what's at stake is making sure our eyes are wide open in the state of Maryland. Um, and then one thing, uh, Kelly, before we go, for many folks, we've been watching the prescription marijuana uh, process in our state, and just so, so the listeners will know, they have postponed, the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission has postponed uh, the launch of several applications, many of which, now get this, minority and women-owned applications. So we are watching this uh, very closely here because we know that there are, are is a huge um, economic boom as it relates to uh, the medical marijuana industry. And we want to make sure that everyone can participate uh, in that. And I'll just leave that, that there. Uh, but we want to make sure that everyone is watching the social, political, economic pieces happening in Maryland. But as always, thank you so much for having me on, and you guys have an amazing time at Ivy Smokehouse tonight. Well, thank you, Janice. I really appreciate it. And we will certainly look for your uh, report for us next week uh, and update us because I'm certainly interested in the cannabis bill, the chemical bill, and the SNAP bill. So let's make sure we uh, get some updates on that and, and talk about that further.
joining us tonight. Thanks so much, uh, Janice. Will do. Take care. You too. Do Keep doing your good work. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Janice Jones, uh, nice, young, savvy political in the Maryland area, working hard to make sure that we have the updates that we need so we know exactly what's going on in Maryland. Uh, the DMV, we're going to get make sure we get folks for, from D.C. as well as from Virginia to come on and talk to us about what's happening. But my next guest, as we, because I, I want to move quickly to get to uh, uh, folks that are going to be out there talking about D.C. as, as well as our, our national issues. My next guest is entrepreneur and president and founder of Green Scheme, a nonprofit organization that was birthed out of the realization that there was a lack of environmental awareness that existed in many of our communities, i.e. black communities, right? And uh, it was fueled by the desire of him and his partner to impact the way people think about their health and their environment. Ronnie Webb and Joelle Robinson created Green Scheme to organize, educate, and empower communities of color. Their mission is to, break, to bridge the communities and resources to empower youth and live, to live healthy and sustainable lives. Welcome to the show, Ronnie. I appreciate you taking the time out of uh, your gardening experience and, and coming on the show and helping us understand exactly what's going on. Thanks for coming, man. Go ahead and pull that up to you, and uh, and uh, you know you can talk into it. Is anybody here? Okay, out there. All right. So let's get right into that. Uh, what what was it that you know? Because when I think about it, when uh, um, I was, it was good to finally meet you because we've not initially met, but through Leah we met, and uh, I appreciate you putting your ad in our magazine and and supporting us that way. But it's good to actually meet you. So talk to me about where your passion came from for environment and healthy eating and living. What does that spark from? Because it's not the area that you see most African Americans in, talking about green energy and, and, you know, urban, well, urban gardens maybe, but not necessarily us doing it. They want gardens in the urban city, but it's not usually us doing it. So what was your passion? What, what started it off? Well, I kind of stumbled into it. So I actually, I remember Or learning guide or production guide 
And then from there, uh, I co-created curriculum with the uh, American University of Suicide and Health, um, implementing these workshops with community members, um, youth students, and actually um, hands-on go through this process of going there with some vegetables, harvesting those vegetables. And then what comes um, is really cool is from that co-created program, that secondary program that runs off of that called Foreign Work. So these kids and community members are taking small sections of their yard and going in. They're taking the men to their kitchens, which is the Department of Health Certified Kitchens, and they're infusing the mint water um, and then selling it or giving it away um, in food deserts communities. So now we use the word food apartheid. So right, now, you know what? I'm going to slow down. You're talking too fast. You're missing my questions. My questions, Slow down a minute. Because I, I, was, I was looking at that, you know, I got to do some research. So I'm looking at food deserts and food apartheid. I'm like, food apartheid? Well, we went back to South Africa. What's going on? What's, what is this controversy about food deserts and food apartheid? What's, what's going on with that? Um, there was a great article that came out, um, and um, Liz introduced, us, um, introduced our organization to this article into the term food apartheid. And um, pretty Leave it, it up to Leah to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's great. It's actually, we have that language. She ain't even been to Africa. You don't know about apartheid. She's from LA, Santa Monica. Okay. This woman sat on a beach every day that she was out. Okay. <laughs> she don't know nothing about no apartheid. <laughs> so how did she hook you up with it? I mean, but she does do a lot of research. I will give her that much. She does a lot of research. So she's going to come up with apartheid, and now you guys change from food desert to food apartheid. Is that what's going on with it? Okay, I guess so. I guess so. You know, it's really important that we, you know, we stick to the community is. And, you know, um, you know, that was a term that food desert was a term that was kind of given to us. Okay. And so now, you know. So, so it was like our slave name. So, okay. so it's given to us, and so we're going to change it. Okay, okay. we're going to move out. All right. And what it does is it helps us, I believe, um, it gives us support of the approach of resilience. You know, and so, um, you know, it's, we have a lot of stuff going on. It's, it's a specific racism issue. Right. Um, you know, and well, last week it was it was a big discussion for us last week, and that's that's why I think Leah uh, made mention of us uh, having you on the show because last week we had the issue talking about you know food deserts and just the idea in Ward Seven and Eight and the idea that there's only one supermarket in in those areas and and how um, you know you know food sustainability and and how you know fresh fruits and vegetables those things are being you know produced and uh, uh, shift are, are available in those communities. So it was something that came up last week. And of course, you know, Leah's going to be on and say, okay, well, this week we're going to have to do something like this and put something together, right? So I appreciate that. So what, what type of impact are you guys having on the community and uh, empowering young people in underserved areas to take ownership for the environmental issues that are affecting their community? Um, we're getting really excited, really excited to the gardening. Uh, the community members, we come to a green team workshop. All of our instructors look like me, um, you know, look like our community. So they, they really, the kids get really excited to see their peers coming, not peers, but folks a little bit older than them coming in and giving them those instructions. Um, we incorporate music, fashion, um, sports, fitness into this urban garden, this holistic, um, healthy lifestyle, um, which, is, which is in return supporting the environmental, um, environmental 
I want to make sure you incorporate some policy in there, some public policy, because that's going to be the real key in how you move forward and get everything going. That's, and that's really important. One of the things that our program does is we activate these young people to be changers. So once they go through a workshop or a series of workshops with Greenstein, they automatically take this knowledge um, that they've got and they take it back to motivate their families, they take it back to motivate their friends, their teammates, their, their, their students in other classes who may not know. And so that's one of the main things. That's why you know you always say you catch them young. Right. Um, we get them excited about the health, of, the health of themselves, health of their community, and we can tell them directly. You know, man, this this is you know this will help you with. You play football. Right. Uh, man, you need to eat this right. So quickly, give me thirty seconds. Uh, what it is that you're doing next, or what? How can the people help you? Those listening, those here in the audience. What is it that you need from us as your nonprofit? What are some of the things we can help you do to make sure we help these kids uh, sustain themselves and, and get the vegetables, the fruits, and, and help you and what you're doing? Definitely. Um, check out our website, uh, org. We're always looking for um, get our garden sponsors. Um, we're looking to sponsor students. Um, we're looking to actually go and um, take our program national. So we have a couple of opportunities to go out um, to get conferences and show our blueprint. So, I, you know, we can definitely scale our impact up. But that comes from our community supporting the work that we do. Um, and just bring our resources. Um, you know, we're growing as an organization. And when you start from, you know, a seed, you know, you go through your growing pain. So, we're in the process of sort of fleshing our growing pains out um, so we can scale up and have a big impact on the community. Well, Ronnie, I appreciate you stopping by and, and educating us and helping us understand. We will certainly have you back as you continue to grow. You have a free platform right here to come on out and talk to us and let us know exactly what's going on so we can take that food apartheid and make it food services and something else, you know. We can do it. We can build it up and grow something, all right? And shout out to Karen Washington who wrote that article um, who actually sort of coined that phrase. Um, definitely want to give her a shout out. Um, we definitely want to push that. All right, so I'm going to have her come up here and find it for me next time she come up in here. All right. So <laughs> I want to thank Ronnie for coming up and stopping by with us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start talking about D.C. issues and what's going on here in the District of Columbia. So I will see you in a few moments. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. If you want to join the conversation, call us at 516-590-0943. I want to uh, do a brief introduction for my uh, next guest here. Uh, Two powerful black women in their own right representing the social, economic, and political links uh, for the residents of the District of Columbia and their respective roles as advisory neighborhood commissioners. Uh, tonight, we have Ward 5 Commissioner and Chairwoman Ursula Higgins. Uh, Ms. Higgins currently serves as a Senior Certified Housing Counselor at the National Urban League here in Washington, D.C., and she seeks to help D.C. residents realize the American dream. As a representative for the Ward 5, she serves as a chairperson for ANC 5B, where she is the stalwart for the community through her work as a parent-teacher and her past work as a parent-teacher uh, board member as well as a member of the Welfare Reform Subcommittee under Mayor Sharon Pratt-Kelly, as well as volunteered for the American Red Cross for HIV AIDS. And she's also been an advocate for the people. I've known Ursula for a little while, and I will tell you that when I was on the city council uh, as a staff person, if anything she needed, she was going to get it from me because I did not want to have any problems with Ursula Higgins to make sure that she got what she wanted. (laughs) Ms. Higgins will let you know. And the other half of this dynamic duel, the black girls rock, or black girls magic, as we got going on over here, is uh, Ward 7 Commissioner and Chairperson in her own right, Ms. Sharice Mohammed. As a community advocate, Sharice has served, and as well as uh, Second Vice President for the D.C. Commission Consumer Utility Board, as well as uh, she, which educates the public on technical components of utility. She is a strong advocate on behalf of tax of the ratepayers of D.C. Uh, for public utilities, including water, gas, electricity, and telecom. She's a litigation and investment paralegal with a diverse professional background in advertising, nonprofit fundraising, government, regulatory affairs, and education. And joining these two strong women is the newly appointed chairman of the D.C. Public Service Commissioner, Mr. Willie Phillips. Willie serves as the PSC. He's been on the uh, board for four years, and he's an attorney and serves on numerous energy-related boards and commissions. His extensive background in the energy and regulatory field amasses more than a decade of service. This young titan is well-versed in the nuances of the regulatory policy and authority, and we want to welcome them all to the show. Welcome to the show, people, my people. Let's get right into it, Ursula, because I need to start with you, because if I didn't start with you, I would hear about it later. But let me start with you, Madam Chairwoman. Uh, we're in your ward. We're in Ward 5 with you, and uh, I want to thank you for welcoming us. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to thank you for welcoming us. Talk to me about um, this in this community. We're, we're sitting in the middle of the community that uh, back in the day was, you know, dream and love right next to us. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on in this community. Now you have, um, 
you know, Ivy City is different. You know, before they were saying, don't walk through Ivy City, don't drive through Ivy City, you know, don't even skip, you know, you know, get on the mopeds, you gotta, you're in the wrong place, you know, you might get your chain stolen. So talk to me about what's going on now when we look at a predominantly black community that was predominantly black and, and it's in its own right. And, and now we have a more mixed community moving forward towards full gentrification. How does that impact the community uh, from your perspective? Well, I'm going to start off saying that we welcome the robust community. We don't want to see vacant buildings and apartments, and we actually want to see people utilizing the city, not having to go out into the county, and the buildup of this area is fantastic. Um, we have a mixed group of individuals that come to visit, and we have plenty for them to do. Not only do we have restaurants, we have housing, we also have um, the head company, which is really across the street, and it also utilizes affordable dwellings as well as inclusionary zoning units that people that might not be able to afford these beautiful residents do have an opportunity. So this is a great part of our city. I love it, and I love what's happening. Well, when you look at you know how things have moved and how it's changed, are there still opportunities for, um, as, as uh, we were talking uh, with um, uh, Janice about creating opportunities for African Americans to be able to, you know, participate? I understand there's affordable housing, you know, or, or you know, housing that's available for them. And so, what about from the business side? Because you, we always know that, yeah, sure, we might be able to live there. But, uh, you know, we may not be able to spend our food, you know, spend our money there. We may have to go somewhere else to buy things. But what are the opportunities for us to actually own businesses in this changing demographic, in this changing district? That's a good question. Um, they are far and few between, unfortunately. Um, there are um, a lot of black businesses that are coming up in the city. Unfortunately, they don't stay. Um, we need to support them more. Um, we need to get those um, services and benefits and grants that a lot of people have opportunities to get, but not necessarily the African-American small businesses. All right. So we do need more opportunities in that area. So we can be and thrive without counterparts. Exactly. So there's still some growing that needs to take place in the community that includes us. Okay. So Willie, uh, Mr. Chairman. Talk to me about briefly uh, the, the layout of what, in, what the impacts are for the Public Service Commission on behalf of district residents, because I know that you guys are, are um, out there doing things uh, that are impacting the district residents and, and trying to find benefits for them. For those people who don't know and may not be aware, give them a, a, a quick three bullets of, of what to better understand and what the Public Service Commission does for the district residents. Sure. First of all, thanks for the opportunity to be here as well. Uh, the D.C. Public Service Commission, we are a quasi-judicial body. We have three commissioners. One person is appointed chairman. I'm the chairman at this time for a four-year term. We're appointed by the mayor. We regulate all of the incumbent utilities in the district. That includes, that includes electric, natural gas, and telecommunications. And everything that that entails. So uh, a lot of that has to do with infrastructure projects, which I know you want to get into here in the Absolutely. And Commissioner Mohammed, you're in Ward 7, uh, one of the areas that we're talking about with the 
food apartheid. Uh, at least I was talking about it. You know, you can you can let me know exactly how that how that's working going on out there in Ward Seven because I'm in Ward Eight. So you know, they always talking about this. You know, these 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 Ward Five folks over here, and I don't know where the chairman lives, but you know, it's like you know they they always up on us. They always up. But guess what? Where are they all moving to now? Right, Ward Seven and Ward Eight. All right. So talk to us about uh, what's going on. How does um, how much is about us in, in seven and eight now there's no more space downtown they're coming to seven and eight what is going to be the impact uh from you know from this uh the shift in this move coming you know as we say east of the river well east of the river has been sort of the gem of the district of columbia there are so many uh amenities and aspects to the to the area that we have seen that have gone un acknowledged. Uh, one of the one of our challenges in Ward 7 is we've gotten lost in identification when you say East of the River. When most people hear East of the River, they think of Ward 8. And that's our fault. We have not promoted our narrative and to distinguish ourselves as a, as a ward and our needs as a ward. We're just coming into that. So uh, the challenge is not taken away from Ward 8, but we do have a challenge with clearly delineating that we are a ward, we are east of the river, and we are we have a set of issues or we have a set of uh, details that we need to, to be more forthright in communicating throughout the city. So how does the Public Service Commission uh, help her, you know, what, what are some of the things that are going on uh, with the organization, with that agency that's impacting Ward 7? Absolutely. The Public Service Commission uh, has been uh, a body that we have been engaging. Uh, we have asked, and I, I was very gratified to hear uh, Chairman Phillips's uh, remarks at his hearing last week with regards to more engagement from the PSC's position to uh, constituents and bringing payers east of the river. One of the challenges that we've had with the PSC is that there has been some disparities with regards to service as well as penalties for low and moderate income ratepayers. So one of our challenges has been uh, engaging, like right now for an example, there's a 10% penalty if a person is late on their water bill. It's punitive, and unfortunately that punitive action can often parlay into a lien on the property which can then lead to a, uh, an, uh, an instance of displacement. So that's just one example of the disparities of how policies have become weaponizing our utilities. Now, you can't name one person in a city that can't survive without water. You cannot exist without water. No, we don't want to flint. Right. We don't want to flint right now. The human so, Sharon, right. so, yeah. go ahead and respond to that and, and talk to us about, you know, as in, you know, in your new position, what are some of the policies you're going to look forward to putting forth and how are you going to deal with the disparities and what happens with that? First of all, I just want to say thank you. You were the one person watching my website. I appreciate that. Uh, no, it was the criticism that the commission has heard, the Public Service Commission, unfortunately, it has been warranted. Um, over the past few years, I think that we have sort of rested on haven't gotten out in the community engage with folks that regulate as much as they need to. That is going to change. Um, I'm standing up in the very near future, the Office of External Affairs, 
product, your utility bill. You'll know who to contact. They will get back with they will get back to you within one business day. That is something that I'm committed to going forward. There's also the Office of People's Council. I want to make sure that I shout them out right. while we're here. Uh, they do great work in the city. When they're in the community, they're working with people. They can also help be in uh, go between if you will. If you have any utility issues, they can help you get a resolution without some type of formal procedure. Uh, can I add one more quick thing? Go real quick. Go ahead. So uh, we have utility discount programs for low-income residents as well. Those programs, they're not government assistance. They are ratepayer-funded programs for people if you get in the fund and if you need to know. So, Commissioner uh, uh, Higgins. What's wrong? What's wrong? No, I, I'm just listening. <laughs> okay. I'm just to the Office of People's Council, and I just really wanted to piggyback on that because um, as a private office, it's excellent mm-hmm. when it comes to mediation and when ratepayers are having difficulties with their utilities, and we see a lot of that. Um, it's a lot of senior citizens that have enormous bills and are not able to pay. And or they have issues with um, leaky faucets or pipes or what have you, where it's no fault of their own. Mm -hmm. But because the Office of People's Council is there as a mediator, as a cushion, as a buffer, they are really actually helping the people on the ground. That's good. And and that's a positive. So I'm so glad that you you spoke and referenced that, that your office is excellent. So when we when we think about what's going on here, uh, really quickly, um, I'm I'm going to keep you guys up here for a minute. But real quick, uh, Chairman, we talked about some jobs in the uh, Washington Gas and this retro pipe fitting that's going on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep you here. I I have some callers that are calling in, and uh, I want to get to my uh, caller and my next guest. But I'm going to keep you here because I want to find out about those jobs. And then I'll bring up our national crew uh, here in a second. Um, this is what happens when you do stuff live because you got you got to move, you know, you got to keep everything going, and then people calling in on you. You're just like, oh my god, what's happening? So, so <laughs> and you got to make it fun and lively, everything else, right? So I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna take a break. I'm gonna go right into our our next guest uh, just before we finish up here. Uh, my next guest. I'm excited to have him on the, on the line. Uh, Dr. Philip Lucas is a licensed clinical social worker and an expert in mental health treatment, trauma, as well as human sexuality. He's an adjunct professor, uh, adjunct professor at Trinity University, George Washington University, and the Graduate School of Social Work at Howard University, where he and his students are joining in with us tonight. They're calling in uh, to, to address the, the BPT audience as well as join us tonight, and I want to thank him for joining us tonight. Professor so Lucas, you. are you glad to be here with you? We're glad to be here. I'm going to ask the students to say hello. hello. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out and interrupting your class for us, and I apologize for, for keeping on hold as I did, but uh, it's, you know, things don't, you know, it's live. It works the way it works. It's not taped, and we can't play yeah. it back, so it's going to have to be the way it is, okay? So let me get no right into it and, and start off with uh, helping our listeners understand the psychology behind uh, a person who commits a hate crime and, and what the general profile is. And let me set that question up for you because 
what we're what we're talking about is Hollywood and issues with Jesse Smollett and and the idea of, of what's happening there and where that's going and what's going to happen. I didn't get a chance to do my intro as I would because I was taking a break, but I want you to to talk to us about that and and how mental health, especially in our community that we don't talk about, how this you know can impact. And what are the general profile? What's the general profile of mental of the mental state in your professional opinion? Well, there and as I said, my students are here, so I am going to ask if anybody wants to chime in for them to do that. But um, you know, there's not really a specific general profile. We look at several different kinds of things. There's been a lot of different research uh, on looking at hate crimes that people commit them. Um, Meg Dewitt and Levin did a bit of research that looked at four categories. Uh, one like somebody who's like a thrill seeker, um, that that person who might commit that crime doesn't have uh, a specific reason. Um, they're just kind of out to have fun, so there's no rhyme or reason. There's no connection to anything. Um, sometimes you could look at maybe some young kids or uh, somebody who might be uh, intoxicated just kind of uh, for the thrill of it. Also, the people that they attack with this type of hate crime are not people that they consider society really cares about, um, so it doesn't matter. Then we look at people who might be um, a person that we call defenders or believe that they're defending themselves or their religion or a particular population. So for that reason, those people will uh, attack. And when we talk about hate crimes, what we're doing, we define them as uh, an attack, a physical, uh, aggressive attack on another individual, a group of persons based upon bias. Uh, something they don't like about that group or something that they think about that particular group. And we know that can be around race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender. Um, we've seen lots of those kinds of things. So uh, there again, you have your thrill seekers and your defenders. Then you have persons who consider themselves kind of retaliators, that they want to get back at someone or something. So um, in this instance, there could be a group um, that someone could have committed a crime, either a particular race or gender or um, for instance, think about 9-11, um, uh, then um, after 9-11, very often we saw hate crimes uh, against persons who maybe appeared as Muslim, just not because that particular individual did something, but because there's this notion that that group of persons did something, so then I'm going to commit a hate crime or retaliate uh, against um, that, particular, that particular group or um, uh, that particular person. Um, so and then we look at... These people who feel like they are on a kind of a crusade, um, that they are out to save the world, so then they commit those crimes. Okay, go ahead. Okay, okay. so when we look at, uh, if, if we look at the, the Smollett case, if these allegations mm-hmm. are true that, you know, he fabricate, fabricated uh, the allegations and the attack and, and what's happening, what will his what will his actions mean when addressing future hate crimes across the country in your, in your professional opinion? Great, great. And it is a great question because that's a lot of the debate. Um, and I think we have to be careful to make kind of one kind of notion around what will happen. Because I know there's been a lot of talk about the fact that now that he did that, whenever people who are African-American or people who are gay or lesbian say that they've had a hate crime against them, uh, that that person won't be believed. Won't be believed. Um, that right. If there are people who want to believe that, you know, so, so you, as you already know, well, there are some people who are looking for a reason anyway. So if indeed there are people who believe that, then they will respond and kind of not believe uh, someone if they are truly a victim. 
Uh, otherwise, I think we will really accept this as a part of society and recognize it if it is true as a young man who had some difficulties or challenges and because of either one of those categories I mentioned of his own reasons, uh, decided that that was what he wanted to do. But I really right. caution us that saying that, you know, just because this happened, then everybody's going to look at someone who's great lesbian, bisexual, or, or a person of color and discount um, their issues related to attack. And, and real quick here, because I, I, I saw a story um, on uh, in the paper, excuse me, online, that was talking about Jesse talking about, you know, he was, he was you know, he felt overwhelmed. He felt like, uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to make it and, and things like that. Are those some of the signs or some of the keys that will push someone to uh, uh, instance of fabrication or fabricating a, a, a scenario or instance? Um, is, there, is there those pressures that causes us to reach out rather than saying, help, we do something else instead? Well, sure. Um, and as I said, I'm sitting here with a class full of students and encouraging somebody to speak up if they like, but clearly we know that when stress or pressures on someone, then they may act impulsively or they're not thinking clearly. Or they contrive different kinds of beliefs uh, in their own head. And certainly as you're dealing with the pressures of being in the public eye, an athlete, a performer, then those people are especially prone to a level of stress. Uh, one of the things I tell my students is that, you know, when they graduate, they probably could be a therapist for somebody who's an actor or an actress or an athlete or something. Because we know with that level of stress on those persons and, and the expectation to keep up this kind of image, then they will sometimes succumb to these some behaviors that will cause them to act impulsively and, and really do these kind of things. Uh, it's really unfortunate, but it, but it really is true. We don't pay enough attention to that, though. All right. Let me uh, let me see if this is a caller on the line and uh, hold one second. I'm I'm gonna. Uh... Hello, welcome to Black Politics today. You have a question? Hello. Uh, yes, I had a question for Commissioner Higgins. Okay, hold the line. Regarding. As as, hold the line. As soon as I finish this segment, I'm gonna get back to the commissioners and the chairman, and you can ask your question. If you mind, hold the line a little longer. No problem. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hold on. Okay, uh, uh, Professor. Uh, final thought. What's at stake for our community? Because mental health has always been a taboo uh, topic in, in the Black community in ways that uh, our listeners and your students, I'm sure, uh, can think about family members that they know was crazy, but nobody said anything about it. Big Mama was crazy. Nobody said anything about it. June, June was crazy. Nobody said nothing about it. And then when something went off, they said, yeah, I knew he was crazy, but they didn't say anything about it. So what, what, what are the, you know, what's at stake for us in our community and the silence and breaking the silence uh, so that we can do things that are better, uh, uh, healthy or more healthy for us and our families? Oh, yeah, and that's, you know, certainly something, you know, we've been dealing with for a long time identify as African-American man. So we know that in these black and not black communities, we have experienced this. Um, uh, and what's at stake is our own well-being, um, our own um, our really looking at our generations of um, young people to come after us that can be impacted by this. Um, uh, and unfortunately, uh, 
unfortunately, we haven't been taking advantage of mental health services, and we don't have to look at mental health or mental illness as uh, something that everybody's not impacted by, because all of us have a blue day. All of us have an issue that sometimes affects us and takes us kind of off of our normal way of thinking. And it's at that point, really, that we need to also be open to get some assistance. But we're really at high risk of that happening. I don't know if anybody else wants to have anything you want to If you don't mind, I have one student who wanted to kind of chime in on this response to this. Uh, please tell sure. me your name. Go real quick. Hi. Hi, Sasha Stewart. I just wanted to add to that. Um, I think the important thing as far as um, bringing mental health awareness is just people voicing how they feel, what they're going through. If you're stressing on something, just letting people know that you're doing self-care routines, chiming into self-care routines, as long as well as getting the help of therapy and just voicing it, telling, sharing that with your friends, sharing that with your circle, just letting people know that it's okay to seek help and to feel that way and that you're seeking help about how you're feeling. Great, thanks. Uh, and again, and, and we want to use, the, we wanna use the, you know, the DC Office of Mental Health, the Department of Mental Health has a number that, you know, is available uh, that folks can call in and get some assistance as well. Go ahead and, and share that number with us. Um, give me one second. I'll give it to you. Why, why you're getting, why, go ahead. 673 uh, I'm sorry, six seven three nine two zero zero. Okay, do it one more time. Two oh two. Two oh two six seven three nine three zero zero. and okay. that'll give them to mobile and get them to the uh department. Okay, and real quick, uh, Commissioner uh, Mohammed, you wanted to make a comment. Mental health is an issue that I know for us in Ward Seven is definitely in our purview because yeah. ever since the closing of uh Saint Elizabeth what has happened to the city's infrastructure to address our mental health patients? I'll tell you what's happened. They have gone out into the general population. We found that many of them are homeless. Many of them are uh, pretty much migrating throughout the city on a regular basis. Some of them are being warehoused in our public libraries and establishments throughout the city. So this is an issue not necessarily in Chairman Phillips' purview as the Public Service Commission, but I would say to the DC Council and as well as the Mayor's Office, we need an infrastructure. We cannot just have siloed areas where we send people for one stop and then they're back into the general population. There's got to be an infrastructure of systems and policies to treat and to house mental health patients that are that are Um, to be ashamed about if we start to have some feelings 
of trauma or stress or mental health challenge. And also we want to recognize and other people that we know and support our loved ones around getting help and support. Well, great. I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Philip uh, Lucas. I appreciate you taking the time out. I want to appreciate your class and allowing us to intrude on your, uh, 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 what is it, your uh, curriculum or your teaching, whatever, whatever we interrupt you. I want to jump in there and get your uh, wisdom and insight. Yeah, because these are all graduate students, people getting master's degrees in social work who will be graduating from Howard University School of Social Work. Great. I'll be calling you back so we can talk to them again. All right. Take good care now. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Philip Lucas from Howard University Mental Health class and his graduate students there. I want to thank him for joining us tonight. And let me get back to my panelists here now who are uh, uh, Chairman Willie Phillips, who is the chair of the Public Service Commission, uh, Commissioner and Chairwoman uh, Sharice Mohammed of Ward 7D, and Chairwoman and Commissioner of 5B, uh, Commissioner uh, Ursula Higgins. And then we had a call caller who asked you a question, um, uh, Madam Chair, Ms. Ursula Higgins. Go ahead, caller, you're on the line. Go ahead and ask your question. Hello, how are you doing today? Um, I followed Commissioner Higgins um, since she actually started um, on the commission, and I believe she's worked wonders in the community as well as as, uh, build morale amongst the neighbors. Um, I know that she she helped several... (laughs) No, sir. (laughs) I know that you've assisted several people in the neighborhood find jobs. I would like to know what is your method to that and how often um, do you assist uh, people in your neighborhood with jobs and do you only assist people in your neighborhood with jobs or is it citywide? Well, so that's not our well, the services that I provide to my community are not just garnered to my community. Um, we try to work with all of the commissioners um, in Ward 5, we all have a relationship in terms of trying to assist each other. So while I do assist people in finding jobs in my community, I like to spread it apart because I do want people to pay taxes to the District of Columbia. We want them to be as independent as they possibly can to be able to rent, to be able to purchase, to be able to be upstanding citizens in the District of Columbia. So wherever my services are needed to be at my place of employment or through the commission, I've always given myself as well as my time to the community. Thank you. Great. Thank you for your call. Thank you so much. Thank you for your call. So, Chairman, let's get to those jobs that uh, we were talking about for uh, Washington Gas and and what we're looking at. Uh, Talk to me about what that looks like, how that's going to work, and and what's the opportunity out there. First of all, let me just take a step back and say, I'm calling this next decade the infrastructure decade. We have several, almost three billion, I said, billions of the dollars worth of investment uh, going into the district over the next 10 years. We have project pipes, as you mentioned, with our Washington gas, our natural gas utility. We also have deep and plug. This is an infrastructure project to underground some of the worst performing feeders in the district so that we can improve our reliability. Uh, we also have another PEPCO program called Capital 
This one is pending, so the commission is still, still under review of the commission. But it is another $850 million. And I'll tell you, any, any contract in the city that is worth more than $250,000 has to offer that contract to certify This is an opportunity for each and every person in the district. If you have a specialty, if you have some type of contract, even if you don't have a company today, this is going to be 10 years of investment. Start your company. Get certified. We have an infrastructure academy in the district that we have approved as a result of the Pepco X1 merger. They can take your application. We can train you. We can get you an entry-level job starting at $20 an hour by the end of the year. So this is a great opportunity. We hope everybody will come out and everybody pay attention to what's going on. There is a lot of money being spent on our infrastructure. And our community has to come out. We have to make sure that we're Very good. Let me go to the phone lines. Go ahead, Carla. You're on the call. You know, we can hardly hear your guests. Sound like they're in a tunnel. All right. Well, thank you for that feedback. We'll make sure our sound people understand that my guests are sound like they're in a tunnel. So we'll make it we'll make it better for you. What's your comment? Yeah, or question? some echoes. No, I was uh, I'm a I supported and vote for Donald Trump. I think he's doing a good job, basically, in keeping with the campaign issues that he threw out there. I appreciate the tariffs, tax reform. <laughs> And also the immigration Sir, I reform. Think, I think you on our next panel. You you want to hold on the line for our next panel because we're going to bring up the panel that's going to talk about Trump and everything else. And you. All right, I'll hold on. I'll hold on. Matter of fact, I'll leave you up. Thank you. All right, no problem. Hold on. We're going to take a quick break, and I want to uh, call up Greg Caston, uh, who is the owner of Ivy City Smokehouse, who's allowing us to, to host this. But before I do that, let me thank my guests, my panelists, uh, Chairman uh, Willie Phillips and. Commissioner uh, Sharif Mohammed and Commissioner Ursula Higgins, you know, I just want to thank you guys for coming up. Let me tell you now, you will be called again probably next week, the week after, and the week after that, because I want to have this dialogue so that we can talk about what's going on in the district. Um, uh, you know, you heard Janice Jones talking about Maryland. I want to bring you guys back to talk about D.C. I'll get the other ANC commissioners here as well. But certainly uh, with what you're doing, Commissioner, what you're doing, uh, uh, Chairwoman, and you doing, Chairwoman, I certainly want to get you guys back on uh, and come back here anytime, anytime, please. All right. We're going to take a real quick break, and I'm going to bring up the owner of Ivy City Smokehouse real quick. And then I want my national panel to come up because we already got a caller. We already got somebody going up. <laughs>
You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now, back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Of course, as I mentioned before, and I failed to do it again, but certainly we got a call. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 516-590-0143. 516-590-0143. I brought up the owner of Ivy City Smokehouse, Mr. Greg Caston, who has allowed uh, Black Politics Today for us to come out here and uh, use his, his uh, uh, restaurant as our open platform and our open studio audience. So I am grateful to him for that. And uh, we're going to continue to do this each Monday, build it up. This is our second time here. Uh, so we want to build it up and, and get you to come out and join us every week, Monday from uh, 5 to uh, 8 p.m. The show starts at 6, so you come out and get your happy hour on, uh, drinks and wings and food and whatever you want to order. Certainly those of you who are here can certainly go up to the bar and uh, get your drinks, get your tickets down at the back at the, at the uh, receptionist desk, uh, sign in. So, Greg, you've moved into the community. As you probably heard, we're talking to Commissioner uh, Ursula Higgins of Ward 5 uh, and what it is and how she's excited about what the, the change of the community is going on. What's your goal for the community as the as a staple in the community right here uh, uh, as Ivy City Smokehouse, well, what what are some of the goals and things that you're going to do? Well, I don't know. Uh, look, has to be. Go, let's turn that on for you. Okay. Turn it on. Boom. There you go. You know, uh, look, we've been here for a long time between Pro Fish and Ivy City Smokehouse. We just want to see the community get better every day. Better for the people who live here. Better for a place for all of us to live. Ivy City's going through a lot of change right now, so. Our goal is to, to just make sure it's a happy place for all that are here to enjoy it, and that it's a better place for everybody every day. So, what's your next? What's the next uh, 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 venture or the next goal for Ivy City Smokehouse? And what's your vision? You know, what, what do you, where do you see this being five years from now? Well, I'd like to see the Crumble School project get done. I'm obviously a part of that, but I think it's really important. It's a centerpiece of this neighborhood, and it's time now. It's been. 40 years, we just need to get that building open and back in, in operation and back as part of the community. And, 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 and then I'd also like to see Ivy City be part of that gateway to the Arboretum um, and, and just all the, the beautiful things that can happen to a place that's been industrial and hard for a long time. It could be a real softening and a real, a real nice end result. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, I want to thank you for coming up, get, uh, giving us a few moments of your time. Uh, I, I saw you back there, and I said I wanted to bring you up just to say thank you, but also give you opportunity to address the audience and let them know exactly what your plan is for IBC and why you've been so supportive for us as, as Black Politics Today and coming in here and uh, the, the new things that you have going on. Well, and I was just going to correct your introduction where you said you allowed your show to come here. Really, for us, it's a privilege to just be able to be part of anything that spikes interest in the ongoing debate and how we can make Washington just the greatest city in the world. And I'm proud to let you be here and proud to be a part of it. We're happy. There'll always be specials and there'll 
always be making this a fun place on Monday nights, especially with your show. It's really going wonderful. We're really proud to be a part of it. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. The national debate begins. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Call in 516-590-0143. 516-590-0143. We'll be right back. You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now, back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Again, you can give us a call at 516-590-0143. 516-590-0143. This is going to be our, our, uh, this our, our national hour, if you will. Um, I, I like to try to keep it an hour because that's where we started at. And uh, we always talked about the national issues. Uh, but once we moved over here to Ivy City, I felt it um, uh, imperative that we discuss the local issues that are happening because we're in the community. We want to bring the community, uh, you know, bring the people from the community and talk about all the issues that are going on. And, and then, of course, use the, the normal hour that we usually broadcast from 7 to 8 to talk about the national issues that are affecting the African-American community and talk about what's at stake. My next guests don't need any introduction. Uh, they, they've been with us uh, uh, throughout the, the time that uh, black politics uh, has been broadcasting over the last few years. Um, and of course, we you know look to 
discuss the different issues and and integrate what we talk about and how it's affecting African Americans. Although we may talk about national issues, uh, there's always something that's affecting us, and in this case, it's no different. Of course, we hit on the issues of dealing with uh, the uh, you know, 45 and, and and the individual in the White House. We also are going to be uh, touching base tonight on on Cohen and Kushner and what the impact is on the African American community and where do we go. And what you know, what's at stake? What's going on? So my next guest uh, is again uh, a regular now that uh, I have uh, uh, commandeered his time on Monday nights and, and told him just you know mark your schedule. I want to see you every Monday night, and you're just going to be one of my regular panelists every night. Is Reverend Marquez Ball, pastor of Uplift Church and a member of the National Action Network uh, local chapter. He's uh, also joining us back again is my good friend Greg Stewart. He is real estate executive and ANC Ward 7 Commissioner, 7 seat Commissioner, Advisory Board uh, Commissioner, uh, along with Rebecca Carruthers. She's a Democratic strategist and principal with Carruthers uh, Consulting. And uh, last and finally, but not least, is uh, Mr. Ralph Chittum. He's also a um, Republican strategist and uh, the um, president of, uh, give it to me, Ralph, I, I just lost it in my head, um, Executive Director for um, Urban Rand. Yes, Urban Red. Um, so just to really, you know, kind of open up the discussion, um, there's a few things I, I, I'm going to probably try to show and, and do some videos on. But, but before I even get that far, let me just throw out here the whole idea of the whole idea with um, Michael Cohen's testi uh, testimony and things like that. It seems to me that some of the things that the, the uh, House GOP was talking about and addressing wasn't the substances of what he was saying, but more of his character and what he was saying and challenging his character. Do you think, Gregory, that in that sense, given that clearly a lot of things that he was saying were true, that whether he was a liar or he lied before isn't going to matter with what he's saying today is true? I'm not, I'm not an attorney, I have one thing, but you know, when I'm not an attorney, but my understanding of like uh, court cases, once you've perjured yourself, any future testimony is therefore called into question. And since he perjured himself or, you know, accused of perjuring himself before, while testifying before Congress before, the fact that he was testifying before Congress again and potentially perjuring himself, you know, it sort of adds, uh, it sort of damages his credibility. So, but the, the perjury by his testimony was as a result of him protecting the president, his friend Donald Trump. So, like we all say that, yeah, you, you lied before, so you're lying again. Were you lying then or were you lying now? You know, that's always the question asked. But my question is, does that take away from what he's saying today because he lied before when his testimony is that he was lying on behalf of somebody else because he was protecting Donald Trump? He's a liar. He perjured himself. If he was in the court, all those things are true. 
But even Chris Christie said that, you know, as a, as a uh, prosecutor, the only way you get the dirt is going in the gutter to get the dirt. I mean, the, the people who are going to lie for you aren't the, the you know, the pristine, <laughs> upstanding individuals. They aren't going to lie. It's the folks who, you know, they got something to gain, right? And they have more to probably to lose. Or in his case, like he said, he was intoxicated with Trump and he would just want to be around Trump and all those things. So he wanted to protect him. So, you know, he lied. And now he's coming back to say, okay, yeah, I did. So, but does it take away from him showing a check and all these other things? So Greg said that he's not an attorney, but I am an attorney. And one thing that you do is you rehabilitate a witness. So he's been convicted of lying. He's perjured himself. He's going to go to prison for a long time. Now, when we think about his original testimony to the Congress, he was also, um, he had written testimony that was edited. He had statements that he was going to give to the Congress that was edited by White House attorneys, Jay Sekulow and um, Mr. McGahn. Mm-hmm. So I think what we see with the Cohen testimony from last week is we now have a dragnet of 60 more people who are going to be under investigation right. by this Democratic House. And I think that's a good thing. The other thing that I would say, before I think Greg is going to jump in, is that just because Cohen lied before, we have someone in the White House who lied over 8,700 times per the Washington Post. These are documented lies. So we're comparing lies to lies. Then if Cohen is not to be believed and should be thrown in jail, then maybe the president should not be believed and also thrown in jail. So... I think, were you saying something, Ralph? I, I, was, I, I, I couldn't hear you, so I, I wasn't sure if it was. Not only did Cohen perjure himself during his first testimony before Congress when he was under oath, but he has also been referred for perjury charges for false statements that he made during this round of testimony before Congress. So not only did he lie then, Okay, but but let's but let's hold on hold on hold on hold on. So let's 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 talk about that. Let's talk about that. But but let's but let's look at the but but wait a minute now. Okay. Okay. So so let's talk about what the lie is. The lie is that he wasn't trying to work in the White House. Now, how material is that to the fact of? What he was before Congress for? A lie he, is a lie. Okay, a lie. I agree. I agree. However, however, he is a proven liar. Okay, well, well okay. Okay, so with that, only prints the truth, right? Right. All right. So with that, all right, are you saying that his payments to him for paying? Um, Miss um, Daniels, those are lies too. I'm saying nothing he said can be taken at face value. Okay, nothing so can't. credible. So, I personally don't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. Okay, so with the evidence of his checks, with the evidence that Donald Trump said he paid him, with the evidence that um, what was the former mayor's name, uh, Rudy Giuliani said that he got paid, and then he showed up with the checks, we should still think he's lying. I. Th- I said what I said. He is a proven liar. Past, he's a liar current. He's a liar okay. future. Okay. Everything so going back to what Rebecca says, the president we know has lied. 
and he's been proven to lie. So should the same standard be held for him that we're holding for Michael Cohen? Okay, for first things first, I will, I will, I will accept your assumption that the president is a liar. Those aren't assumptions. Come on, Ralph. You know I like you, Ralph. You know I like you, Ralph. Those are not assumptions. Those are not assumptions. Was he under oath when he made any false statements? Yes or no? Uh, actually, actually, yes, actually, yes. His written statements, his written statements, reportedly has been said that he lied under his written statements when he said he was allegedly any of the lies that the president made. Allegedly, he was under oath when he presented his when when he presented his written statements to Bob Mueller. That was under oath. Those were to be under oath. He swore under penalty of perjury when he signed it and his attorney signed it, which he did lie. They're talking about that right now. Right? Am I am I right? If you submit if you submit answers to a special counsel or to the FBI, it is known that if you lie to the special counsel or the FBI, that is a potentially perjurable offense. Oh potentially because it might not be under oath. No, potentially it's not under oath. No, 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 it's not about oath. Whether or not that special counsel recommends personally charges. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that he didn't perjure himself. Now it goes to the constitutional question, can we indict the sitting president? So there's more layers to that. It's not just, oh, well, he must not have lied. Otherwise, he would be um, charged with perjury. Right now, what Bob Munger is doing right now, he's looking at all those statements that Michael Cohen has told him. He's looking at all the um, um, corroborating evidence that um, Mueller has. And he's putting together his case because when he releases that special report, I don't think this country is ready. And, and most of this is going to happen actually with the with the with Southern District of New York uh, for what they're going to bring and all the charges that they can bring against Cohen if he if uh, um, for any future lines. But then Congress has to deal with the him lying in front of Congress. Congress has to deal with that. But all the future things they're going to be coming from the Southern District. Especially dealing with Trump, the the business and every and everything from there. So there's multiple uh, fronts. Right. Now. There's right. the Southern District of New York that is exclusively looking at the Trump organization and the Trump kids. That's one thing. The Southern District of New York is also looking at the Trump Foundation. That's another um, set of occurrences. Then we have um, in D.C. We see there's a Manafort um, hearing going on in D.C. And then we saw the Northern Virginia. Uh, Manafort um, proceedings. And then we have Bob, Bob Mueller. So that's even before you get to Bob Mueller, you have four other big cases in um, four different jurisdictions going on. On top of that, you're also going to have state charges because now we see the AG of New York is now looking into some of the same allegations. They're getting referrals from the special counsel. They're also getting referrals from the Southern District. And what's important to note about these state referrals a president cannot pardon people on state prosecutions. Right, right. So, Pastor, um, if if we, 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 this week has been so crazy, <laughs> it's been it's just been a whole week. So, looking at this and 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 looking at what Ralph is saying, Ralph is saying, "What well, you can't believe corn for anything." Um, uh, uh, what's his name up in New Jersey? Uh, Christie says, "Well, I'll have to, you know, I don't believe him." I don't think he's going to do this, but what I would have to do is what Rebecca says. I have to corroborate his 
story. I have to corroborate that because the only, you know, when you deal with the mob, the only person you're going to get is the person who's in the mob who's done all the dirt to tell on the person who's at the top. So Cohen is doing that. Cohen is basically saying, look, as he told Congress, all of you fools up here now are doing exactly what I did, blind loyalty, and you're going to get caught and you're going to get burned by it in the end, as you see with one of the congressmen who sends out a threat against him. So when you look at that and the corroborating evidence that he brings with the check and other things, isn't it really saying that people who are still blindly following Trump are either ignorant or they are not really holding up the Constitution as they say that they always wanted to do because the GOP is always the constitutionalist and they're not really doing that because it doesn't benefit them right now. Uh, I think it's willful. I think it's from the Midwest and the South. My name is Pianchi, but I didn't have no question. I was just making a statement. I'm one of those <clears throat> supporters and voters of Donald Trump, a black African-American. I voted for him because of his issues. Myself, what was the issue? issue that you voted for? Well, the issues that he laid out in his his rallies and his town hall okay, what meeting. Issue? I'm asking you, what issue was it? His issues and tariffs. The issues of tax reform, his issues on uh, immigration reform. Okay. Now, you come from the school Midwest. School choice. You come from St. Louis? Well, I'm in the South right now. Yes, it's between St. You're Louis in the South? and... Uh, mm-hmm. We're about in the South. In Louisiana. Okay. What immigration issue do you have in, Im- in Louisiana? No, I, my immigration issue is in in the country. Uh, people that come into okay, the country. What is the immigration be, issue that you have? Because right now we have a net zero immigration issue. So the people, more people are leaving this country than coming to this country. So what is your immigration issue? The immigration reform is that people that's in this country illegal need to be gotten out, and those that come in should come in legally. So then Melania's parents need to be gone out too, right? Because they just got. Well, no, I'm not talking about Melania. Can I illegal. can I say something? Could I say something too? No, I will listen how you was. I, I will listen how you was arguing with the other guy. I guess he's okay, a Trump wait, supporter sir, too. Sir, answer the question. My question is. I have so no issue with Melania. I said people that's entering the country should be entering the country with a visa legally. Those okay. that's here already illegal, they need to be rounded up and gotten out. I have okay. concerns so with. I have concerns with residents. Let me ask you this question. I, I don't know you how what. old you are. No, listen, listen, sir. Let me, me answer is... this question. You go ahead with your program. I don't have no time for arguing. 
I was going to argue. I was asking you a question. Well, that's typical. <laughs> I mean, why is it that individuals never want to actually answer the question that you ask them, but they want to deflect the question that you ask them? Because I just asked them a simple question. If your issue is immigration, and if your issue is they need to be getting out, which we know isn't going to happen because there's no way you can round them all up. But then I ask you, Melania did not, she came on, uh, it wasn't even an HB1 visa. It was a, a different visa that she somehow got. Her parents didn't have an H1 visa. They got here, but they got their little citizenship like that. They didn't have to wait the seven years. They didn't have to wait the 10 years. So my question to him was, okay, if that's the case, doesn't that still apply to Melania's parents? He wanted to hang up the phone. Doesn't it still apply to her parents? Are they here legally now? Well, they just got, he just, they just got their citizenship last year. They, they, got, they got that granted through her husband, not through the process. And that's, and that's what I'm saying. It's like, I, I, I agree in the sense of, okay, fine. People who come here illegally, yeah, you don't want them here illegally. Okay, great. That's fine. However, however, one from being from California, I know all those farmers down there in San Diego and, uh, and uh, uh, La Jolla and everybody else were white Republican farmers who were hiring the immigrants that were coming across the, the uh, border, hiring them. They were getting work visas, and they were staying there. They may stay longer. They, may stay they were not going to get them out because that was their labor. And the point is, and the real issue is, is that immigration is the labor force that we use that we've always used. White immigrants, and, and, and my question to him was going to be, if that's the case, then shouldn't his great-grandparents been sent back where they were? Because they got here illegally. You don't know where his grandparents came from. Yeah, I do. His, his, his great-great-grandparents? We all know where they came from. All of us came from here, okay? I guess my comment is, why do you keep conflating legal immigration, which has that process, Dallas Island, the whole nine yards, where they come through there, and there's a payment system to immigration lawyers that legal immigration, there's a system in place with illegal immigration. We're not conflating that. No, it's like everybody keeps saying immigration. It's like, no, when you walk across the border, that's legal immigration. You have committed a crime. Not if you're going to your port, not if you're going to your port of entry and you're going for asylum. That's not illegal. But that's not illegal. That's not illegal. It's a misdemeanor. It's not illegal. What you're talking about is like, well, if they did that, it's like, oh, basically you're saying loopholes in the whole legal system, which happens not just in immigration, but in the law system, in all these systems that we have set up here, even in this city, as far as operations and doing business. That does exist. Do people get prosecuted from it? Not as much as those that commit a crime, a typical crime on the street. Legal immigration and illegal immigration, there is a separation between the two. Of course when there you is. talk about people, you know, Trump supporters, like, no, the biggest fight is, no, we're saying illegal immigration. They've committed a crime when they come into the country. We want them to go back and get in line and wait in line because that's totally disrespectful to someone that has waited in line for seven years, gone through the process, paid their money to come in when all they had to do was take a trip to Mexico City and walk across the border and they would have been citizens or they would have had just as much of a chance. That is just wrong. Okay, but I, I think what I was saying was that, and, and, and agreeing with you, Tim, but then adjusting what you said, because when I said coming across the, the, 
actually, I did say come across the border, but when you're saying come across the border, if they're coming through a port of entry and they're coming for asylum, that's not illegal. That's legal. At that point. Okay. I, I just want to make sure we're on the same page because that's legal. What you're talking about now is these caravans coming up from South America to Central America. These are not people seeking asylum. No. These are people who are trying to jump the line to get into the country. Now, as far as you know, Melania's parents, did they receive special treatment in the immigration process? They probably did. But let me tell you a story about my family. Um, back in the 60s, uh, one of my cousins married someone who wasn't in the country legally. And fortunately, we knew people in government, and we jumped the line, and we got her husband's legal immigration status so we could be here. So let's understand that in this country, there are always going to be people, black or white, who have access Absolutely. Who can gain the system? Absolutely. Bringing up Melania's parents is nothing more than a political ploy. No, no, I, I wasn't doing a political ploy. Hey, and that's and what I wanted, and, and, and that was my point I was trying to make with the caller is that, look, you're going to say that you're supporting Trump for his issue. So what issue is it? He said immigration, this and the other. Well, where are you? I'm in the South. Okay, well, what immigration issue do you have in it? Well, no, no, no. I don't want to argue with you. I'm not going to tie this. I'm going to hang up. So that tells me that you really didn't have any points. You just want to come and call in and just say, I'm a black man. And I'm supporting Trump. I don't care that you're a black man supporting Trump. That's fine with me. I'm glad you're a black man. But help me understand what, your perp- what, what is the, the position that you're taking in your support. I don't have a problem with you supporting them. Just give me the position that you're taking in your support, and let's dialogue about it. Let's debate it, and let's talk about whether or not it's real or it's fake. Now, on the immigration issue, while I agree we need to tighten up our immigration, both borders, north and south, Okay. another issue that really needs to be dealt with and that the president has been remiss in not talking about and no one has been talking about is all of the individuals that come here on tourist visas and student visas or other visas and then overstay. Exactly. And, never leave. and, and, and now, who are those? And who are those? Who, who, who is that? Those are, those are people mostly from Asian, from Europe, and everywhere else. And he don't want to do that. He, yeah, he doesn't want to do that. So I agree with you. Right? That, those are things that he wants to do. It does need to be dealt with. But you notice how no one in Congress talks about that on either side, but especially on the GOP side, who are always talking about immigration, they never talk about that. They're talking about southern border, southern border. That's not it. It's not the southern border. It's the northern border, and it's those who come over here on visas, overstaying their welcome, and propping up in New York, and staying in New York, and New Jersey, and, and going up. And it's also... And in the Midwest. The, the tourist trade from Asia... I just said that.
which people that we want to bring into this country. I can give an example. For instance, in the 1960s, we decided that we were going to allow um, Arabs to come into this country, but only if they were Christian. If they were Muslim or if they were a different religion, then we wouldn't let people from Arab um, countries um, come into the United States. Or we could also talk about um, with the famine in Ireland. Um, the late 1890s, there was an influx of poor Irish who came into this country. Then all of a sudden, where I grew up in the Midwest, you start to see no Irish need apply signs. And you started to see um, you started to see the numbers uh, that we allowed of Irish people coming into this country. You started to see a cap on those numbers. Or we could see in certain areas of the Midwest where there wasn't a high population, the United States government started to recruit Scandinavians because they figured, hey, you're using these rough, cold climates. Come move to South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, Nebraska, and Kansas, and we'll give you land. So we've never had comprehensive immigration policy here, or let's talk about in the 1800s when we recruited many Chinese workers to come into this country to build our railroads, but we told them, as soon as you build these railroads, you have to leave. We don't want you in this country. You better not get any of our white women pregnant, right? So let's talk about how we never had comprehensive immigration, whether it comes from Democrats or Republicans, but we have to be honest that with this president, He's specifically decreasing the numbers of black and brown people from black and brown countries who could come into this country. It's, it'll be one thing if we were having comprehensive immigration, we're trying to figure out, okay, who's here, and let's have a systematic approach with how people can enter into this country, but that's not happening. If you are from an affluent or Western European country, there's practically no limit of how many of those people can come through. Well, he already said that. He wants them from Norway. He wants them from Norway. He wants more but but let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me switch, let me switch gears here, and I want to go to this national security issue because that's one of those things where all we heard in 2016 was national security, national security, national security because of emails. But now we got, what, at least three people in the White House who can't even pass a background check, and they got top secret clearances. And I can't understand how in the hell this happens, and it's okay, and no one's talking about it, all right? Pastor, if you sitting here going to tell me, well, where are the emails? But even the emails that you got had nothing to do with national security, had no issues of illegality, had nothing to do with anything other than fighting and bickering about your opponent, but you give the son-in-law a top-secret clearance and he can't even pass a background. And then you override it by saying, oh, yeah, let's do that. And then say, I had nothing to do with it. And we find out later that you did because your chief of staff actually wrote a memo saying that you had to do it. That was a lie, Ralph. That was a lie. Okay. So wh- how do we deal with that? Um, well, let, let me say that I'm prior military and I have to go through the process of getting things. So I know how in depth this process is. And you have to keep it up, right? And so there are a couple of things going to play there. For one, you've got to fill out information about the background. And on top of that, typically the type of clearance they were trying to get, you have to sit for a lot of detectors and they're going to ask you particular questions. If you do not pass, it's not because they just don't like you, it's because there's a chance that you could be compromised or have been compromised. And so when we push someone through who we know did not pass the background check. You're now putting the country in jeopardy and the place favors the people that never 
okay with, with and, let's, and let's be real about it, Gregory. Someone who has no national security understanding whatsoever, someone who has no international affairs whatsoever, someone who really, outside of working for daddy, has no other business experience, and then he's going to sit there and negotiate a truce in Israel and Palestine. I mean, come on now, Gregory. You got to, you have to tell me that that individual should not be holding a top secret security clearance and then traveling abroad and going everywhere with our nation's top secret issues and, and things. And the same guy who wanted to do a back channel with Russia. Well, everyone, if it's you and I, we're in agreement. I think you should be fired and gone immediately. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I take that, okay? Such a thing as like as far as security and personnel issues in the White House. You know, if there was a major change in the personnel in the White House, there you I mean, Rob, if, if that was... No, he, he said he should be fired. He shouldn't have a job. He said he should be fired. Yeah, but, but you know, exactly, know exactly. Because think about it, think about it. Thank you. Now, had it been Obama, what would this country, what what had the GOP would have been saying about it if it was Obama? If Obama had brought his uh, brother-in-law in or anybody else, there would be, I mean, it would have been all holy hell up on the up on the hill talking about, oh no, oh no, oh no. Let alone if he had a son or a daughter that he brought in there. Well, that, that's why there's people need to understand that there's a huge difference between moderate conservatives and Republicans. Okay. There's a, there's a world of difference between moderate Yeah, I I I agree. That's the yeah. same with the Democratic Party too. I mean, there's some difference in that. But when you have the rallying cry of Congress, who is always talking about the Constitution, the Constitution, Constitution, but yet they have abrogated the, uh, the Constitution and done nothing about it, and it's like, okay, well, well we're not going to do anything. We're not going to hold them accountable for anything. Well, if, if you're looking for someone that's going to sit here and defend blindly the President and the Congress... No, I'm not, but I'm, 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 I'm thank you. There is no reason why, when you have Republicans who are controlling the Senate, the House, and the White House, that we now have a deficit of $22 trillion, when, all, when we're supposed to be the party of fiscal accountability and fiscal responsibility. That is an absolute sin and abomination. But you guys do that all the time. You did it under Bush. And, well, and, 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 You're right. You are absolutely... And, and Republicans need to be punched in the throat. You can't, there is no reason, if you are a true constitutional conservative Republican... That you are going to continue. I don't know what Mitch McConnell was doing, but hey, putting out the tax cut that he did that's going to increase $2 trillion wasn't one that was like, oh, that was real conservative uh, thinking. There. No, that wasn't conservative. No. Exactly. Exactly. Republican, but it wasn't conservative. <laughs> 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 so, Pastor, looking at the impact of, of what you have here with, with national security issues, uh, Cohen, and, and just the whole atmosphere in there. What's going to happen to black folks and the grand scheme of things? Because none of the policies that are going through the Senate or the, the previous House when the Republicans in charge were benefiting us in any form or fashion. And now you have 
uh, a situation where you have an individual there who's now, I mean, the one thing that got me with Cohen said was like, I'm afraid that if he loses in 2020, he's going to go eight crazy and do all this other stuff. When you look at some of the, 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 the stuff that's coming out now, we don't have policies that are benefiting us right now. We don't have anyone even addressing it from uh, the White House or the Senate to try to deal with stuff like that. Where are we going to be in the next you know, term, next four years, uh, two years, looking ahead at 2020? I think a couple of things are important. One, we have to recognize that the crisis that we see happening now, while it may not directly take the impact, Absolutely. For example, when you saw the financial meltdown, we didn't see exactly how it was going to impact black home ownership, but years later we began to see the major impact. So I think we got to begin to see even the national security crisis, the policies crisis, that it's going to have a trickle down effect that's going to right. majorly impact our students. That's one. I think we have to make sure we are, as black people and the people we are endorsing, unashamedly pushing policies that help minority communities. The reason I say that is because if I help someone who has pneumonia, it will definitely help somebody who has a cold. The truth of the matter is, when white America has a cold, black America has pneumonia, and we normally just try to fix the white America issue. And so it could be the opioid crisis versus the crack epidemic. It's the white crisis, not the black crisis. We have to begin to encourage Politicians who want our vote to say, this is what I'm doing, particularly for black America or for minority communities. We recognize in doing that, we help all Americans thrive. I, I think it's a, it's a question, Rebecca, of what uh, Pastor Ball was saying, is that you, you don't usually get elected officials to actually say, I want to do something black. It's real hard for them to say that. They always want to say, I want to do stuff for everybody. But the reality of it is, is that stuff has already been done for everybody. It needs to be done for people of color. It needs to be done for us. Um, but it's, it, it's, I mean, let's be real. There have been policies that have been directed specifically towards groups. And African-Americans have not been that group that people have specifically drafted policies for to benefit. And, and, and I, I agree with them. But I think it's going to be hard for anyone elected that doesn't come from a black community, a black uh, district, to say that and actually get it passed. So as a black community, whether you're conservative or progressive, we have to make it hard for people not to listen to us. We have to make it nearly impossible or where we let them know in the primary, in the general election, you're not going to get our support if you don't have a specific black agenda. Now, I do agree that, yes, there has to be a coalition of minority groups. But black folks need a specific black agenda because based upon our unique experiences and our, uh, the unique um, amount of institutional racism against black folks specifically, there are specific structural things that have to be done for us. The other thing, too, on the progressive side, we have to hold our allies accountable. We can't just tell them, Oh, if we're going to show up for the Women's March, then we also make sure those same women and white women show up to Black Lives Matter. If we're going to show up on other issues that impact some of our Latino brothers and sisters, then guess what? They need to show up for specific black issues as well. If we're going to show up for different uh, issues that impact LGBT, guess what we also need to ask? We need to ask those same groups, what are you doing about black queer people? 
Why is there higher levels of disparities with black queer people compared to white queer people? We have to hold these so-called allies accountable to black issues. Otherwise, we cannot give our full-throated support to all these other groups and these other types of candidates. And Ralph, I think when Rebecca uh, started that uh, dialogue last week, I think you took issue with the idea of a black agenda, and you can correct me if I was wrong. I, I'm trying to remember, but um, do you agree that there needs to be, and like I said, you know, us, either you're conservative, progressive, Republican or Democrat, but we come together as a community, as a community of color to make sure that the issues that are going forward are for the benefit of our community, because clearly, policies don't always trickle down, as we've always tried to say, oh, well, if we do it for one, it's going to help everybody. It doesn't always work that way. Well, the issue I have with, with the term a black agenda, it, it assumes that all of us have the same concerns. Well, no, I mean, but it doesn't assume it doesn't. that. No, it, no. It doesn't assume that. Yes, it does. Did you say a black agenda? Didn't you just say, well, let, well, let me say this, Ralph. 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 And if you don't fall into that black agenda, no, then Ralph. whatever you're pushing is something Ralph. other than a black Didn't agenda. Didn't you just say to me there's something different between a conservative and a Republican or a moderate conservative and a Republican? Conservative, Republican, and moderate. Right. Okay, there right. So there's always difference with us being black folks, but the agenda if you come together, you can create an agenda that does not, it's not monolithic to the saying that, oh, well, it's going to be one thing. There can be pieces of that one thing, but it's all going to benefit our community is what I'm saying. That, that sounds good in theory. But what happens is when I show up at a table with a table full of progressives and I show up as a conservative and I articulate something different, I'm the one who's told, oh, you're not black enough. You're not black. You're, you're not a part of this black group. So my ideas as a black conservative are then dismissed and marginalized and pushed to the side, and my concerns now are no longer deemed acceptable to this, quote, black agenda. Well, well, and I'll be honest with you. And I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. It's because most, and I'm going to say for the most part, the, the ones that I have met, most black, African-American, Republicans that I've met have been so far to the right on their issues and have forgotten that they were black. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, 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 no. They have forgotten they was black. Okay, the ones I'm talking about, the ones I'm talking about have. So when I say, when you say, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, you've been dismissed and everything else, I think the mindset is that once you come in and they find out you're conservative, you can be that so far to the right that everything is, you know, it's it's the it's the the hypocritical Christian coalition or it's the hypocritical uh, we don't want you to do this, but we're gonna take the subsidies ourselves and, and all that kind of stuff. I think that as Black folks, we can get together with conservatives, with moderates, with progressives, with Democrats, come together and create an agenda. My thing, as I said, the reason why I have you guys out here all the time is because I'm not sitting here looking for just one point of view. I want both points of view, but I also want to be able to say that if we can come together and create an agenda, it's going to benefit us all. So therefore, we don't leave anybody out. That's what we need to do. We don't have to sit there and say, oh, just because you're conservative, you, you're, you're ostracized and we're not going to talk to you. 
No, we're going to talk to you. But but you have to work at the practice to allow it to get done. So you have to be able to let your view heard rather than it being. Exactly. So then you don't have to leave. So you don't have to leave. Now, Gregory, on the other hand, you know, we're going to question his ass. (laughs) Go ahead, Greg. Go ahead, Greg. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hurry up. Yeah, for me, it's like, I guess, if I I keep hearing we can't have a specific black agenda, but I'm like, why? Why not? Because every time I hear something, someone references something, oh, it's just like being in slavery, it's just like being lynched, it's just like being hit by stop. You are using our pain for your benefit. So if you're going to use our pain for your benefit. So you're talking about other people. Other groups. Okay, okay, okay. You see how people of color benefit, or that term, or that entire conglomeration benefits the black community. I failed to see it because others use our pain for their. You mean you personally failed to see it, or are you talking about them? I, I personally failed to see it. If somebody can explain to me how I'm using our pain as group data, like, well, it was just like Daniel Slavery. No, it wasn't. And your people weren't enslaved, so why are you using that term? We don't have to use others' terms or pain in order to benefit or gain from the misery in our community. We have our own, and it stands alone. Everyone else has to use ours for their own benefit. My preference is, hey, no, why can't we, since you're using our pain, why can't we have a very specific black agenda? I would love to see that. That's what I would say. And I'm okay. and, and also I was wondering why, like, with the black office, like, you know, what accountability, where is that? You know, you keep saying, well, okay, black agenda. We had, what, two years for the election. We tried to repeal Obamacare. You did tax cuts, all this other stuff, all these, all these other things. You can, why can't you have it next month? Why can't you have it before we have our next radio show? There's nothing stopping you from doing that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you talking about? What what can you have before my next radio no, show? About, no, you're talking about the uh, a black agenda or whatever it is. It's like, okay, the black agenda. This is March 2019. Right. Election is November of 2020. There is no reason why next month. There is absolutely no reason why that agenda could not be presented for next week, next month. So bring it to the show next week. What for me? Bring it to the show next week. Oh, you want me to present? Okay, 
Okay? So, here's... I are in charge, we need our agenda and everything to still move forward. When Democrats are in charge, we still need to move forward. So that's why we need to come together and stop sitting here talking about, well, just because you're on this end and you're on that end, hey, you can like Trump all you want to. I don't care. I don't understand it, but I don't care. I mean, it's fine with me, and and I'm going to support you. You can do what you got to do. I'm going to support whoever I support on the other side, and that's it. So we still got to look at what our agenda is and what's going to be progressive for us to make sure that we hold on to, because at the end of the day, when we become the majority, either we're going to be the minority in our own majority, or we're going to still be in the same place we are, or we can actually take over and do what we want to do the way it should be done. Right, right. That's, that's, that's what I meant. Real quick. When I met him, I told him that. White people win. Democrats win. White, White people, people win. win. Exactly. Exactly. And here's how the challenge that we have to take this African American. Many of us have shared this here. We want an agenda to help everybody. I know. No, this agenda to help me. Exactly. Let's have our own trickle down economics. Let's have our own trickle down theory because you know they're saying the rising tide helps you know lift all boats. Hell no, it don't lift all boats. Okay, <laughs> no, don't, no, don't. Right, If you got holes in your boat, your boat ain't gonna lift. Okay, okay. If you got holes in the boat, the boat is not gonna lift. Real quick, I got, I got, I got two minutes. Woefully inadequate. They have. And that's just says, look, we know you're not going to vote for us, so we're not even going to pay attention to you. Right. And unfortunately, that has set up the situation in the black community where the black community doesn't get anything from Republicans because we don't expect all the votes for us. And that's and why you get, and that's why you Democrats get the reception you get when you go into the group. Right. But right, 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 right. But that's also why you get the reception you get when you go into those meetings because it's like you're not going to give us nothing anywhere. You don't stand and talk, and they think you're carrying a pail. For the white man. And then we see and then, and then, right, exactly, exactly. All right, all right. I want to thank my guests tonight, Rebecca Carruthers, Markel, uh, Marquez Ball, Greg Stewart, and Ralph Chetham, as well as all my other guests. Join us again next week when we come back for another episode of, or another broadcast of Black Politics Today. If it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today. Yeah, I'll bring something. I'll bring something. Just fine. 
It's like, why not 28 points? No, I want five. It's, it's still 28, but once you complete the